Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Hondo Gertz, a former United States Air Force colonel who distinguished himself uh, as the Special Operations Communities Acquisition Executive before becoming the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research Development and Acquisition during the Trump administration. He and retired U.S. Army General Joe Votel, the former commander of U.S. Special Operations Forces, uh, who is now the president of the Business Executives for National Security, are the co-authors of a thoughtful article on the National Interest website, Forging the Industrial Network the Nation Needs. Uh, he is also the host of a new Ben's podcast, Building the Base. Uh, Hondo, great to have you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Hey, Vago, good to be with you and all your listeners here. Good, uh, good to join you today. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure and a conversation that's long uh, overdue. And I should also point out you're now consulting and advising uh, across uh, companies uh, across the sector. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Um, Hondo, a very important piece and a lot of focus uh, on uh, industrial base uh, recently, obviously with strange, strange supply chains, but also a sense that the United States has got to move faster in order to uh, deliver on needs. We, we hear this call urgently, whether it's from the Pacific Forces uh, Commander Lung Aquilino. Uh, we heard it again from CQ Brown. We've heard that message loud and clear from uh, uh, Frank Kendall, Air Force Secretary, and indeed everybody else across the piece, including right up to the Defense Secretary. The vast majority of what you were focused on was fixing and maintaining that which you had bought and buying some new stuff to replace it, not at the scale and pace uh, to put you on the winning side of that uh, equation. Uh, you argue that we have no common in-state vision on what we want to achieve. And at a time when everybody is networking more, defense isn't. Where do we need to be from your perspective, you and Joe's perspective on what this uh, industrial base of the future needs to look like? Yeah, uh, again, I, I think could be one of the most critical questions facing the nation right now, because I think for the last, I mean, since World War II, essentially, we've lived off a World War II industrial base, I'll say plus 4%, right? We made some little changes on the, on the edges, but haven't really changed the architecture. And then we built a a, uh, you know, a glorious bureaucracy all around that architecture, uh, updated a little bit in the McNamara era, and then kind of have lived off it. And, and I think the sense is um, most people in America probably believe the industrial base is much stronger than it actually is. And the worry is our competitors see that it isn't that strong and then view that as, you know, a potential weakness or something to exploit. Uh, in a future competition. And so what General Vitale and I were really focused on was, uh, let's start with an end state vision. If we had it right, what would it look like? Uh, too many times these debates are uh, first an airing of grievances of everything that's screwed up and then a feats of strength of who's the one smart person to fix it all. And then we get a poll and declare a festivus, but nothing ever changes. And largely nothing has changed uh, in spite of, uh, as you say, lots of people uh, recognizing it needs to be. So I think the first piece and where we try to contribute, at least to start the dialogue, is what is that end vision and what is the architecture of the future and we call it industrial network? And start with that as the guiding principle, not where are we now, you know, what do we need to change? 
because we'll, we'll kind of never get out of that what do we need to change mode as opposed to uh, getting to a vision. And what I did learn at uh, Special Operations Command under Joe Botel and Bill McRaven and a bunch of other great leaders is if you can set a vision and adjust the mindset, you'll find you have 90% of what you need already to go after and fix it. Uh, and that's kind of my feeling in this. I think we have all the tools we need. We just need to adjust our mindset and get on a common vision of how to get there. And I think we will be amazed how fast uh, we can pivot uh, this industrial network to be much better serving for the country. Um, let me, uh, which then begs two um, questions, right? When, when you were already in, a, in the Navy, mm -hmm. you were always thinking about, um, without blowing any, any more sunshine, Hondo, up your tall butt uh, as, than, than is necessary, um, you were always looking at this as a network, right? Um, when yep. it came to ship repair, your attitude was, well, wait a minute. You know, just saying I'm reducing cost, if you're just going to increase cost for everybody else is not the right answer. Let's take a systemic approach. Pay that extra $25,000 on a change order when the ship is in dry dock. Get the ship out of dry dock. The expensive, that's the most expensive thing and the most precious resource and the limiting factor, for example, on generating capacity, right? I mean, so you were looking at this from a network perspective. What does that end state need to look like in terms of an industrial-based end state network Network industrial base, right? I mean, you were um, right, leading right. and trying to use data-driven decision-making at a time when people weren't really sold on that and there was still too much gut work in this. What's that end-state vision need to look like? Well, so, so one is you've got to be able to um, leverage all of the assets you have. I'm kind of the fan of abundance theory, another thing I learned at SOCOM, right? Make best use of everything you have before you spend a bunch of resources to you know, create something new. Um, we have a uh, an industrial network in the U.S. that the DoD is losing. I mean, I read a recent Bloomberg thing where even though defense spend is up almost 18 percent since 2011, the number of prime vendors supporting DoD and defense is down 36 percent. And so we've got increasing spend going to fewer people. That's the opposite of a network approach. We've essentially lost the middle of the industrial base uh, because we've got a couple and they're you know, very you know, well-intentioned, but very big prime contractors, a, a, uh, you know, a lot of small contractors uh, and kind of nothing in the middle that can actually scale. So I think what that starts looking like is creating on the, on the buy side um, strategies that don't either go only to a small or only to a big prime that allow us to start incentivizing folks to scale quickly into the middle, right? And then it looks like leveraging much better and creating the policies and procedures and aligning them so we can leverage uh, our allies and partners. Because if you added up the industrial network across all of our allies and partners, plus what we're trying to do here in the US, now that starts to become very powerful. And that's how a 300 million uh, person country like the U.S. starts to compete with a uh, you know billion plus uh, competitors by leveraging our allies and partners. So what we haven't done is is really uh, focused on the opportunity of our enduring strengths, right? Uh, allies, partnerships, our our tremendous financial marketplace, uh, and leverage those towards the DoD. Uh, another big thing we I think we've got in the DoD the thinking a little backwards. We are bragging about, you know, having the largest R&D budget in the history of the DOD. And quite frankly, as Trey 
Stephen said in your last podcast, there's plenty of funding around for research, development, and prototype. There's not production money. And one of the really negative trends in the defense uh, environment right now is we're not producing a lot. So what that means is if you're the soldier in the field or the sailor in the field, you hear about all these you know, wonderful prototype discoveries, uh, but nothing is deployed. So we're overinvested in discovery and underperforming in deployment. So I think starting to switch that mindset, right, is what's the first step. And again, I kind of go back to vision, what's right look like. And right looks like we can rapidly get things not discovered or prototype, but rapidly get them into the field. So I don't talk about a valley of death. I talk a, about a cliff. There's, there's no production. So we have got a flip in, in the DOD to producing more and then leveraging all the great uh, ways you can finance development and prototyping, whether it's government financed or through venture or all these other finance mechanisms. But, but you mentioned uh, Trey and that um, I have mm -hmm. to say, um, I enjoyed that conversation very much and, and there was a lot to take away from it. I mean, one of the most extraordinary revelations was, um, right, even though the future of defense is in software and the company was created as a software company to help change and improve defense, the government doesn't really know how to buy software. So they changed the company, but, you know, right, so the, the customer doesn't know how to buy hardware. And so Andrill became a hardware company in which to embed its software and is now finding success. And we heard from Heather Penny on Wednesday from the Mitchell Institute, where there's a disconnect between the operator and uh, the technical people. And so they have a tendency of regarding a cyber AI data, all of this as pixie dust that can be sprinkled on stuff and solve their problems, right? So it's all about misunderstanding. How do you change the culture in the right way, Hondo? Because yeah. ultimately... This is in the hands of the government and the government is behaving badly, whether it's through the requirements process. And we'll get to the Constellation class frigate in a minute because I want to get your sense on that. Right. It was supposed to be a game changing model of how to do things differently. And instead, it's, you know, we've yet to cut steel on a contract awarded two years ago. Um, right. And, and then the industrial base makes calculated decisions. I mean, if, if you're Lockheed Martin and you're making F-35s and you're making money on F-35s and there's a lot of demand for F-35s, even an NGAD is, is a diversion, right? How do you do this? How do you get every... And, and then Congress has its own interest in this, right? I mean, they don't want to lose what it is they're already building, especially if you say we're not making enough of it. And sort of you could say that that gets you to LCS because everybody's building stuff to build stuff, whether or not anybody really needs it or wants it. But how, how do we need to change this model in a systemic manner, given you know the elements of this, to drive us to the right outcome? Because it seems like everybody's incentivized to actually not get to right. Yeah. And again, incentives are, are a huge piece of this. Uh, and, and the core issue, I think, uh, and Trey's comments on software and all the like, I think, align into this, is I kind of go back to we've got to switch from industrial base mindset, which is develop something to get blueprints that you can hand to somebody that you can efficiently produce a large quantity of standard things at a lower price to a network mindset, which is much more opportunistic, that recognizes that um, you can't plan 30 years in advance uh, all the details on a specific capability or program, right, which is a core of software development a core of much of the commercial marketplace, right? You know, the, you know, the iPhone, they didn't set out to spend 20 years to figure out what the perfect iPhone would be 30 years from now, right? And, and so I think 
first off is just, uh, just getting into the network mindset, which is much more opportunistic, is much more resilient. When you start doing that, then you can start figuring out how to structure uh, programs that are more incentivized for if it's iteration speed or if it's to allow uh, a number of new players or whether it's to scale a good idea quickly from you know a small business of 50 people to a, a, an impactful business of 1,000 people, you can start aligning all that. And my contention, we did it at, at SOCOM, I would say, without having to change lots of processes and laws and statutes. It gets back to, to my mind, mindset of what are we really trying to achieve? And if we, if we can align that, then we can start, I would say, getting at scale much quicker uh, than we have been in the past. Some of that involves, uh, as you say, creating the right opportunities and not just um, thinking about downside risk, thinking about upside opportunity. One thing that works well in the commercial marketplace is if there's an opportunity, it gets seized quickly, right? And, and in the government, we spend much too much time worrying about the risk and actually taking more risk because we're not taking enough risk. Um, and now, uh, what I would say is, um, I've seen a workforce pivot and there's some sense that, you know, we have bureaucrats in government and because they don't get a share of a program, if it succeeds well, they don't act in the right. I think a lot of that is quite frankly, you know, hogwash. Um, if, you know, the government uh, team, they're all working hard. They're not there because they're, you know, looking to get a big paycheck. They want to have a mission impact. And I think the, what we've got to leverage collectively is the frustration we're not having suitable mission impacts, right? And for all the kinds of things you laid out, uh, but I think we can transform that quickly. I mean, even without changing laws and processes, even the Navy in three years, we went from getting about $75 billion a year on contract to $148 billion a year with 15% less contract actions and we didn't change any, we didn't need a new law or any process. So right. we took F-18, you know, mission capable rates from 55% to 80% without any law or process. It's all, you know, I, I, it's hard to, it's hard to enumerate the impact of this collective mindset, but you've got the trays and all of the other folks that, that are trying to get there. I think to some degree, we've just got to, you know, all really focus on what's most important. Um, and, and I fear if we don't, uh, we are setting ourselves up as a nation for a big fall. One of the points um, that you made, Trey made, and, and others have is this n notion that we have as Americans that somehow we're so, somehow ordained uh, to be superior or to be dominant uh, vice our uh, uh, competitors. Um, and it's a big mistake to look at Russia and say, well, because Russia is tripping up, China will trip up, for example, or, or drawing the wrong conclusion from one or the other, right? But I mean, these are countries that are developing capabilities and very problematic capabilities for the for the United States going forward. And and one of them is doing it on mass and scale. You know, I mean, the last time anybody saw that were the Brits looking at us and now we're right. the Brits looking at them uh, uh, doing it. Um, let me go to the culture change part of this. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. you you were extraordinarily successful. I mean, you were a successful RDNA, RDNA obviously, on, on the Navy side of things with, with a lot of. Uh, achievements, but so you and Joe Votel forged kind of a unique relationship as you did with uh, McRaven. Special operations community is Semper Gumby, 
in terms of being, uh, you know, I know that that's a surface warfare term, uh, but very, very flexible, very adaptable, remarkably fast moving. Uh, jettison what doesn't work, embrace what does. Uh, and you're kind of interested, you know what I mean? All of these things, the special operators, you know, a good friend of mine was a, a SEAL uh, and he looked at his weapon as a shovel, right? He wasn't a gun lover. He loved the mission. He was doing it for the mission. The, the weapon was a shovel. Uh, and anything that was useful was good. And anything that wasn't useful, you jettison. Uh, and that went from tactics to anything else. For, does this only work if it's a Joe Votel uh, and a Hondo Gertz? And put it put the other way, how do you replicate this and allow this and actualize this with a long Aquilino, for example? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, what we do have to do is get beyond you know, looking for heroes. And I'm certainly, I would put Joe in the hero category. I wouldn't put myself in that, but we have made it in the past too much about a person or, you know, the right person at the right time kind of thing. And, and it's not like the country doesn't know how to do this. Um, we, to some degree, have to remember how to do it. Um, and, and, you know, I can, you can look back to, you know, look back to World War II. You can look back to a lot of places uh, where we've done this. We've just a little bit got to remember it because I think to some degree, we fell in the trap that you could separate national prosperity from national security. And right. And, and when we started doing that, we had these communities diverging. What's, what's I think um, gives me some hope is watching, you know, folks on the commercial industry really wanting to get involved in national security, not just because there's money there, because it's the right thing to do for the country. I see it in young up and comers and I see it in, well, you know, very uh, accomplished uh, folks like Steve Blank or Trey, or you can pick your, uh, you know, names of those folks. Um, what we do have to do is get the behaviors aligned to create the culture that it isn't just about a certain person in a certain job for a certain time, uh, because then all we're going to do is kind of get fits and starts at things. And I think that's possible um, if we can just start changing mindset uh, and and focusing on outcomes and what actually gets to the field, not just um, what's the nifty prototype. And I kind of go back to that. What one of the things special operations does well is they focus on output to the field. Um, prototyping is good and glorious, but it's irrelevant if if we don't get things out into the field with some pace. Uh, and you know, when I worked with Admiral Aquilino when he was uh, Pack fleet, uh, we were, you know, we were doing the same thing and showed we could do it. We, I think, uh, you know, in five weeks, he called me and was interested in getting some autonomous uh, capability out to a, a fleet exercise. And in five weeks, we wrote a contract and pulled some stuff out of commercial, uh, you know, sail drones and put them out there in the fleet. And Task Force 59 is doing the same thing right now. One of the things that we have to do is close the distance between the end user uh, and the buyer and the developer. And one of the things I know that's frustrating the commercial uh, entities breaking into DOD is they don't actually get to talk to the customer. They get to talk to the acquisition or requirements officer representing the customer. And, and that causes a bunch of impedance mismatch. So I think that is very easily replicable in the services of driving down that distance between end user buyer and developer. We had a great example in the uh, F-18 world with, uh, with our FLIR pod where the you know, 05 squadron commander got a hold of the 05 program manager and they accelerated by years 
the critical algorithms they needed to put in this in this targeting pod, which had great operational impact. Um, we need to we need to make that that's the normal way of doing business, not the exceptional way when you know certain things align. So even though you do not subscribe to the great man theory of history, you were the acquisition executive with then Secretary Richard Spencer, looked at the frigate program as a way to help change the way the Navy does business fundamentally. Let's get off the shelf ships. Let's get the best off the shelf ship that's tailored for an anti-submarine warfare uh, and multi-mission capability. Uh, the Italian uh, French design, the Frem, was uh, deemed to be the right answer. And the ship has an enormous amount of innovative qualities to it. And yet, two years after contract award, we're st still dickering over individual uh, elements of the ship. And indeed, the Navy seems pretty focused on de-innovating that ship and turning it into what its vision of that ship will be. And time and again, Hondo, we find that even great leaders are not able to contain that process. Um, I mean, obviously, you, you left, uh, uh, you know, some nine, 10 months ago. But, you know, you, you, we still could not achieve that vision, um, right? I mean, so ultimately, what does that tell us about the requirements process, about the culture, and, and how it is we need to attack, right? So it appears that some elements of the culture and the organization are adapting and changing, where it appears that other elements of the culture are absolutely not changing. Um, I mean, five, six CNOs have told me how hard they tried to get naval aviation to embrace unmanned aviation, and they just simply couldn't do it. Uh, it happened on Stingray. Uh, and indeed, in Stingray, there are folks who argue that there was one, one of the competitors could have done it, but you went with the competitor who actually might not have been able to do it, but you know, was, was, quote, stupid cheap, according to somebody who was in the room at the time the decision was making, right? That it would have been irresponsible for you not to have embraced that price. You were, you were there at the time, right? How do you change the elements of the culture that continue to prove manifestly resistant to change despite having great leaders, right? I mean, this is a challenge for great leaders. Yeah, sure. yeah, I mean, you know it, what I mean? It, it, and, it's still, and it's still not happening. So it's and it's a challenge in any large organization. I'm sure if you got a CEO from a large organization, they would say the same thing. So let, let me pull apart things a little bit here because you had you know five hours worth of podcast in that last 35 seconds. I, I, I did. I apologize. Uh, it was so, I was it was so, it was my no, festivist moment there. Sorry. <laughs> so I, here, let's say a, a few things I think that are important. The first is we've got to differentiate the work into you know a number of people's. Um, observations. The, the system was built largely around producing hardware and even things of software and hardware terms. And so one thing we've got to be very thoughtful of is how do we differentiate the work and then create the right tools and ways to get the capability meaningfully in each one of those things. And so talking about how to build a new frigate is different than how do I rapidly take a piece of cyber software and get it in the tool. So I, you know, one of the things that's I think important as we roll forward here is we figure out how to differentiate the work and then find great tools that allow us to get that into the field appropriately as quickly as possible. Um, and then not, you know, I think it was Trey that mentioned, you know, for every problem, we had one great excuse of why this was the one exception. We've got to make sure we don't do the flip for every one problem that's been in a program, 
that we don't try and solve every other way we buy things based on that one program. Uh, and so one of the things that I think SOCOM did very effectively, uh, one of the things we brought to the Navy, which has allowed the Navy to speed up elements, is differentiating your work, give the, give the person making the decision lots of different tools to pick from, and then hold them accountable for picking the right tool. And that's exactly what happens in the commercial enterprise and venture and all these other things that we can learn from. And we just need to be able to do that at scale and lots of lots of things to do that. Then I think when you start talking large capital things like frigates uh, and aircraft carriers and fighter airplanes, you've got to figure out the right balance because there is still a hardware element to 10 million man hours of labor to build one of those things. Right. So you got to figure out in this new way how to not uh, undo what's something you could use today, uh, as you, uh, you know, indicated in the frigate. Uh, but also, hey, if I'm going to go build, you know, 10,000 autonomous surface vehicles, I might want to set up a completely different production shipyard that looks much more like a software factory that does some hardware on the side than, than a traditional shipyard. And, and that's where I think if we can get out of all the wasted time we have with bureaucratic uh, idiosyncrasies and get people thinking, then we can start attacking some of these you know, large complex systems. Uh, and as you say, um, value speed to the field as an important element in decision-making. Um, you know, I have found pretty good decision. You know, I'll, I'll uh, argue with some that you know, say the DOD doesn't have good decision-makers. They have pretty good decision makers, but the decision criteria isn't always what's in the best interest of achieving an outcome. And that's, again, another element where I think we can uh, do some uh, improvement. And oh, by the way, uh, I think on the frigate thing which you bring up, I think it does expose a, an important element. Uh, and again, one that uh, I'd learned in my Air Force career back when, you know, in the Desert Storm where, you know, speed and tempo is important uh, further than SOCOM. And I think the Navy is is you know working hard to figure out how to get there is you've really got to involve the end customer uh and helping uh ensure they're making informed um decisions and so you know when it comes to hey are we going to change the core design of the hull um does the commander who is going to employ that have a say in it because what tends to happen uh is we don't talk about the risk of not having something we talk about the risk of, you know, hey, if we field it without this capability or without this feature, but we don't talk about the risk of not fielding it for two more years without that feature. And that's a really important dialogue uh, that needs to continuously occur. And that's how you get programs fielded quickly that are both, you know, operationally relevant and, and effective, but also on a speed which is operationally relevant and effective. You know, we can make very big programs work, um, even if they were very complicated and should maybe not have been conceived the way they were, um, right? I mean, so we look at F-35 lessons, although you could argue the program is beginning to deliver jets that are highly capable um, and, and doing it in volume. And indeed, your, the international demand is proving that there is interest in the capabilities of the airplane. Um, and then you look at something like littoral combat ship and you wonder, you know, and Hondo, by no stretch of the imagination, am I blaming you for this, right? I mean, you had a four-year patch on a program that was already extant and running. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, what's, what's to be learned 
uh, right? Because it, particularly for on LCS, we, we will have developed a class of ships that have hull cracking gearbox problems that the Navy just wants to be rid of it because the Navy never really wanted it. The mission modules didn't work for a nation that put man on the moon. It's hard to imagine. We couldn't figure out mission modules. Uh, it's more sort of you might not have wanted to do it as opposed to, um, and, and now it's sort of like, hey, let's move on. And we've spent many tens of billions of dollars that go beyond the acquisition cost. You know, we've spent time training sailors, uh, you know, the mission modules and all of the other elements of it. I mean, what, what do we, what's to be learned from something like that? Because yeah, this is so, as much about requirements and culture and process and everything else. Yeah. So, I, I, so again, I maybe start with a couple of core theses. You know, these are complex, hard systems, and so you know, I'm spending a lot of time right now in the uh, less traditional DoD marketplace, and there's amazing things going on there. Um, but there's also an amazing amount of complexity to these platforms, and and quite frankly, we don't value simplicity as a core characteristic the way we used to in a lot of these systems, uh, which then, you know, you make something super complex and it's very complex. So by no means making an excuse, but some of these systems we're talking about are super complex. And so one take, you know, when I go back out in the marketplaces and there's 9,000 9, other things going on in the DOD that aren't as complex. And so when I go back to this differentiation, we've got to, you know, We've got to do the things that are simple and easy and fast with the commercial solution available, simple, easy, fast with the commercial solution available. And then these very complex systems, then we've got to figure out what's the right uh, balance. One of the, a couple of things I take away from LCS, again, was not there from the start, but certainly owned, uh, owned much of it uh, towards the middle and tail end. One is it really sucks when you don't have an industrial base. When you're trying to relearn how to do something with folks who haven't done it in a while at scale, it's really hard. It really sucks when your core principle of a ship can do everything for everybody uh, and you overextend a framing assumption that, you know, mission modules would be the right thing. Uh, we actually learned some of that at SOCOM that, you know, modularity is good, but if you don't think about modularity in tandem with uh, building tactics and building training, it can be debilitating. So finding that right balance of modularity that you have some flexibility, but not so much flexibility that you can't, you know, you can't train one crew to do, you know, 35 different missions effectively uh, at any kind of speed. And then the, the third piece is um, we've got to um, get away from taking, I go back to this production thing, you know, it seems like every program now is all or nothing. And our only choice is to produce something for 50 years. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of incentives of why that. But, you know, the thing that worries me the most with a lot of our competitors, uh, China in particular, is they're learning a lot by building lots of different airplanes, uh, you know, for in, in, in fast cycles. Uh, F-35 is a great airplane. I was there as the X-35 guy 20-something years ago. But we, right. if we're not careful, we've, we'll lose the ability to learn how to design an airplane because we only design one every 25 years. Right. And that was another piece I would take from LCS, right? There's a learn, you know, we lost a generation of shipbuilders that all retired. And so, you know, a new company, and, and that, I guess my last lesson there would be, um, that was an area where I would say our strategy of commercial knows best probably wasn't the right strategy. 
right? And the Navy went too hands off on that one, in my opinion, because we said we're going to go to commercial standards and the shipbuilders will know uh, more than we know about something. So in, in summary, you know, again, I go back to getting out of the festivist routine. When you can align, when you can get everybody aligned on the outcome you're trying to achieve and then give them the both uh, accountability, but also flexibility to figure out the best way to achieve that outcome, uh, whether it's at a program level or at a national level, um, I've seen tremendous outcomes. And that's what Joe and I were trying to do in this article of let's get back to what is right look like and not get lost in what's wrong. Uh, and then, you know, start moving towards what right looks like. And I have tremendous, again, I've seen it. I know whether it's even at our, you know, it's at our prime contractors in startups. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time in a lot of facets of the industrial base. I know what the country is capable of doing uh, if we can just get out of our own way and start doing it. And that was a call to action. That's what I'm uh, trying to focus on in terms of my way to give back after all these years uh, in the process. Uh, well, I admire you uh, for that, Hondo, and look forward uh, to having many more conversations with you uh, on this very topic because we're committed to it as well. Um, I mean, uh, you know, it, it is imperative to change. Uh, there is evidence that there is some change, but there needs to be more change, right? I mean, ultimately... Uh, yeah, we've got a scale. We, we have a scaling problem, you know, right? And that's, again, I, I turned on, you know, I turned on, we have a scaling problem. We know what to do. We've done it at small scale. We've done it in pockets but we haven't done it at the large scale our nation needs us to do to secure our security and freedom for the next, you know, next coming decades. And, and I applaud you, Vago, and, and everybody else out there for having good, strong, hard conversations about it uh, and not kind of pitter-patting around it, but uh, let's talk and figure out how to get there. And, and I've seen what we can do. I saw it at SOCOM. I saw it in the Air Force in the Desert Storm days. And I've seen what we can do when we all I'll start working towards it. Uh, and you having these important discussions is a is a key piece of both informing and then challenging and then uh, reinforcing where we've got uh, good things happening and where we need to do some more work. Um, I, I, I agree. And thanks very much for the kind words, Hondo. And they mean uh, a lot coming from you. I, I think one of the other differences was uh, right self-interest. Uh, at a time there were whether it was on the lawmaker side of things, whether it was on the corporate side of things, whether it was on the services side of things, folks would make concessions and look at stuff that's not working and maybe pull the plug and say, hey, you know, we don't need to be doing this and we need to be doing more of that. And I think now folks have a tendency sometimes of fighting their, their corners. You know, you can look at it from the standpoint of a big defense contractor. Uh, if I have a, you know, product A to sell, I am, you know, almost legally obligated to sell as much a product A, even if the customer is interested in product B. Um, and, and, you know, and then you have a constituency, you marshal the constituency and you end up buying the wrong things for the wrong reasons and, you know, expending resources in the process. Right. I mean, I yeah, guess but, the last thing I would ask, how do you change that mindset? Yeah. But I, 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 again, I think it's too easy for us to, um, you know, allocate blame, um, you know, the, you know, the bureaucrat who doesn't want to do the right thing or the prime contractor who doesn't want to do the right thing or the startup that doesn't want to do the right thing or the congressman. I think, I, you know, in, in my heart of hearts, I think everybody wants to do the right thing. And it's not like we don't have enough work to go around or we don't have enough challenges or we don't have a super cool 
and important mission to do. I mean, I can't think of a mission that's more important for our national security and prosperity. And so I'm, I'm, I am less worried about do we, you know, all these potential self-interest um, incentives. I'm worried, worried, we just have to get serious. We, we just haven't been serious enough of taking this on. We've been, as you say, working it on the margins, allowing self-interest where they occur to dominate, doing the right thing. And, you know, we're, we're putting a lot of, uh, we're putting a lot of risk on all of those folks we have downrange uh, supporting us and we're putting a lot of risk on the nation. And so, I, again, I back to a full circle to how we started this conversation where I think General Votel and I both are trying to, you know, assist in the dialogue is let's get serious. Let's, what is that vision? Let's beat the vision up and let's hold all of us accountable to each other and to the nation of achieving that vision. And I think that can overcome some of the uh, self-interest that are out there, because as they say, it's not like we don't have a lot of work to do. And it's not like this work isn't important. And it's not like we can afford to have uh, any, you know, sub-optimization of the talent. We haven't talked talent at all. I mean, we ought to do a whole podcast on that, which is another key Absolutely. Of, this, of this thing. But I, I think, you know, one thing that I have true faith in, in our nation is once it understands it has a hard problem, and get serious about solving it, uh, it solves it much faster and more effectively than it thought possible. Um, you know, I may, I may go down with that, uh, you know, optimistic thought in mind, uh, but I am, I am optimistic. And I see it again. You, I, I can name 20 guests that have been on your podcast, talking to them individually, whether they're CEOs or prime contractors or, you know, startups or, or whatever. Um, everybody, which, which actually been, um, reinforcing to me over the last six months, and I think Ukraine accelerated it, is this notion we have to do something and notion that we need all hands on deck to bring their diverse, unique talents to the table. And I see that, you know, whether it's on the Hill or whether it's uh, in startup land or whether it's even at the prime contractors. Uh, we just got to get serious now about getting after it and not admiring it. Uh, indeed, uh, Hondo, and we look forward to being part of that conversation and look forward to welcoming you back on uh, increasingly uh, for it. And I commend the audience. Check out uh, Hondo's podcast, um, uh, Building uh, the Base uh, podcast. Uh, Hondo, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, and again, as I said, look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Yeah, anytime, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.